Welcome back, everybody, into Cross the Crown episode. I don't even know, but it's 79. an episode. 79. Josh Copen, Doug Gooden, Doug, the uh, pastor, seminary president, uh, ministry director, husband, father, me, just a husband and father. And there's nothing wrong with that. And all around good guy, as uh, people like to say. Um, so, hey, uh, Doug, I, I wanted to mention this because I forgot to do this the last two times and I have teased it, never did. We have Twitter accounts. And we have emails if you want to ask questions, or you can do so on the Cross the Crown uh, podcast or YouTube. You know, you can comment and we'll answer them. Doug, your Twitter account is? At Doug Gooden, D-O-U-G-G-O-O-D-I-N. Yes, and mine's at Josh Copen, where you're very creative people, J-O-S-H-C-O-P-E-N. So those are our places. And then you can email Doug. Is it Doug at Cross the Crown? Doug at crosstocrown.org. Yes. Yes. Mine's a little bit longer and convoluted. Josh Copen, 1981 at gmail.com. Happy to answer your questions. 1981. Yes, the year was born, which yes means I'm turning 40 this year. Let's all celebrate or be sad. Uh, Anyway, I'm assuming I'm going to get all the classic gifts. Like here's some depends and things like that. And good luck with all that. (laughs) Yeah. I've noticed your beard has some gray in it these days, as does, uh, is mine is that what happens when you you reach are you aarp age at this point is that what happens <laughs> when you start getting that magazine just beat gray automatically sprouts you know what's funny about that so uh a year ago was my 50th birthday so you can figure out how old i am this year yeah and uh, it was my birthday is march 20th so on my 51st birthday a couple of months ago my wife and my children finally let out of the bag that they had been planning the party of the century. Uh, the whole church was in on it. They had, uh, I, don't, I forget how many people involved in learning a bunch of classic rock songs because of my music background. And uh, they had, the, the, the music teams had been working on just bunches of music and it was gonna be this big, big party. And uh, one of the uh, elders had been collecting AARP envelopes and uh, he was going to present them to me on my 50th birthday to uh, acknowledge my age. Now, he's in his late 70s, so, you know, he, he can talk about that, I guess. Yes. But, uh, yeah, the great comes, you know, with, uh, with kids. As the kids get older, you've got two young ones. Just wait. Uh, it will uh, do that. Church life will do that. So I'm, I'm earning my, uh, my gray. Well, and I'm pretty sure there's a proverb about, you know, gray hair means wisdom, basically. So you should uh, enjoy that, that you have. Uh, wisdom. So the more gray hair you have, the more wisdom, unless you're Joe Biden. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, people. Calm down. Although not so much. All right. So um, speaking of this, let me ask you something. We talk about uh, wisdom and, and, and the reason I said speaking of because we don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes, right? We think it may have been Solomon. I know that's D.A. Carson's guess and a few others because there's so much talk about wisdom and things like that. Where should we, should we even focus on things like that? Like who wrote Hebrews? Well, uh, God wrote Hebrews and that's all that matters, right? You hear that one, which is true. You know, some people say Apollos because the Greek is a little bit more refined and fancy than the way Paul wrote. Others say, no, Paul was being different and more specific. Our buddy Chris Fales thinks it's Paul. People say there's no way it could have been Paul because of chapter two, because things we have heard, you know, things like that. So should Christians focus on on those things, things that we specifically cannot know? 
Well, when you say focus on, um, well, I mean, spend obviously- any time on it, I guess. I know focus is, is the wrong way to put it, but like, are they fun debates? Yes. But is it really something we should, did the early church have these questions or did, what did Clement say or whatever? So, yeah. <laughs> it, I think it is important. Uh, so it is yeah. worth our time to ponder and to research and to study. And if the Lord should reveal mm-hmm. uh, those things, uh, I happen to be in the Solomon and Paul Camp as well. Uh, a little lighter on the Paul Camp as far as Hebrews goes, but uh, it makes most sense to me that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. And it does flavor, it does, it does color our interpretation some for sure. Uh, knowing what we know about King Solomon, it fits perfectly with what the, uh, the rest of the historical narratives tell us about his life, that here would be a man who pursued all the worldly pleasures, wisdom, uh, drunkenness, all of those things, trying to find meaning and purpose. And we know that he had wisdom beyond all other men in terms of uh, administrative kind of uh, and uh, wisdom. So uh, yeah, it matters. If here's a guy who had everything every human being says he wants and found it all meaningless, it matters if that's Solomon or not. Does it mean we can't grasp truth without knowing for sure who wrote it? No. Same thing with the book of Hebrews. It it fits a lot of things if Paul wrote Hebrews. He certainly was well-equipped to engage with these discussions. And, this, and the chapter two thing, there's a way around that, that uh, he's talking there saying he was not a firsthand witness of the life of Jesus in the same way that Peter and Andrew, James and John, and those guys were. Clearly, he had a firsthand experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, but it could be that he's making a different point there. He's he's trying to identify with some of these Hebrews who are uh, saying, we weren't there to see the crucifixion and that kind of thing. And he's saying, yeah, I wasn't either, although he might've been. So there's a lot of questions around that, but I think it matters, but it certainly does not take away from the inspiration of the scripture to say, we don't know exactly who wrote them. Yeah, I tend to lean Apollos. Um, uh, the, the chapter two thing is hard sway for me, but I'm not against it being Paul. I remember growing up, I just assumed Paul as a kid, cause you're flipping through and it's like, well, he wrote everything else after, you know, so it, yeah, it wouldn't it, have made the canon yeah. if the early church did not think it was written by Paul, mm-hmm. probably it wouldn't have made the canon. So right. the early church Clement and those guys did believe that Paul wrote it. Yeah. So where, where's the evidence for Apollos? I think the Greek, the style it is considered, I remember uh, sitting through uh, a biblical survey class. Um, Dr. Stein talked about how it was, much more different, is that proper grammar, than anything Paul had written. The Greek And was what much... works of Apollos would he use to show that this writing well, of Hebrews was... I don't even know was... if he said it was Apollos. I just know Apollos' background and things like that would, would have been a little bit more, I don't know if the term's elegant with his Greek, but that, again, I'm not completely opposed to it being Paul. I'm just saying people smarter than me have gone, well, we need to rethink it being Paul, but it doesn't matter. So to a degree, right? Yeah. As long as you're right. Right. We were just joking. It's not that you're wrong. It's that I'm right. <laughs> well, no, I'm just I find it interesting that Apollos is thrown out there a lot these days yeah. and think we, we have no other writings by Apollos. Mm-hmm. We have no mention of Apollos there. So uh, on what basis would somebody go there? It's an interesting theory. Mm-hmm. But how could we ever possibly conclude that? I, I don't know. I jokingly said we were going to talk about aliens. We're not going to talk about aliens. <laughs> but I, I do want to ask either. about first. Uh, Mueller is kind of the one who coined the first tier issue, second tier issue, third tier issue, those kind of things. And that's such a hot topic these days in the church. Um, and when people say first tier issues, if I'm defining it wrong, let me know or wrongly is, is we're talking about salvation, the gospel, the Trinity, uh, the incarnation, 
those things when we say for, you can't get those wrong. If you get those wrong, you're getting the rest. Um, inerrancy. Of, well, some people would even argue inerrancy of scripture isn't a completely first tier issue, right? C.S. Lewis didn't completely hold to a 100% inerrancy of scripture. So if it is so crazy and hard to define what is a first and second tier issue would be baptism, uh, would be views of hermeneutics, you know, eschatology, things like that. Uh, third tier issues, I don't even know what those are. Um, but why is that a thing? And are those things we should be divided on? Or are those things that we should make harder stances on? No, what you're calling a second tier issue is a first tier issue, like, let's say, women's roles in the church, because God clearly defines what they are. That's a really difficult mm -hmm. and uh, important question that I don't know that I can just come down and say, here's where uh, I can prove any particular view of this. And I don't mean to mean to be squishy and wishy-washy. I'm just saying it's hard. Case in point, uh, my denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, is in a place very similar to the SBC in, uh, as far as the women's role and in some ways, critical theory. Uh, you know, I think the uh, the convention coming up for the SBC, what is it in uh, end of June or mm -hmm. yeah, uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be intense. I expect that to be pretty uh, pretty hostile, and uh, the lead up certainly is. And uh, you know, I'm watching from, from afar, and uh, because we as as the Christian Missionary Alliance, we are our convention is actually the first week of June, and uh, some of these things are gonna be raised there too, no doubt. Um, so. I, the reason I, I this is front runner for me, front burner, because uh, our denomination already allows for women to preach in the in the service, and there are many, including our present leadership, who are saying that's always been the case in the alliance. Uh, I don't think historically that's true. I think there's quite a bit of evidence that says that's not true, but uh, that's what some are arguing for, and they're trying to say that uh, pastor and elder are not the same thing. And pastor is the gift, elder is the office. And as long as you have male elders, then any woman can have the gift of pastoring, and we should not prohibit women from exercising those gifts. And as long as she's under the elder authority, she can preach and teach in the large assembly and all that kind of thing. So uh, that's different from where my church is. My church sees elder and pastor as two terms to describe the same person. We believe they should be men. We believe uh, Paul says clearly in 1 Timothy 2 that women should not be teaching authoritatively when there are men in pr present and that kind of thing. So all that to say, we as elders have worked through the theology to make sure we're all on the same page biblically, and we are. Then the question I put to the guys is, what on what basis do we break fellowship? Because the same Bible that says women should not be teachers over men says Jesus is zealous for unity. He wants us to maintain a spirit of unity and show deference and all those things. And so that just raises the perennial question that every age has had, had to wrestle with. Where's that line on any issue? Uh Okay, we'll come back to the tier thing in a minute, but but these things that are clearly taught in the Bible, some of us see that they're clearly taught in the Bible. On what basis do we break fellowship over them? And that's a hard one. I mean, we we've gone through it as elders, trying to say uh, because it deals with authority, because the scripture is so clear. Uh, how long can we fellowship with a group that is wrong on this? Yeah, and I think you know, first, second, like baptism being a a less well, depending on who you are, a less contentious topic. I mean, if you're R. Scott Clark, and then it's a contentious topic. But being a less top, but it is still 
I've always felt this way. If you are consistent with covenant theology and you're a Baptist, you're actually inconsistent with covenant theology. There's no mm -hmm. way it doesn't lead to infant baptism. So how do we approach it? If you hold to a view that believers only, profession of faith, be baptized, well, aren't you arguing that then it is a sin to baptize a child and vice versa? If you're not baptized, you are in violation of God's continuing covenant only in the new covenant now of how it looks, the sign of the covenant. Isn't that a second tier issue? How can you sit there and go to a church and go, I'm going to let them sin over these babies or, oh, they're not baptizing my children and that's a sin. So how can that not be seen as a second, as a pri priority issue or first tier issue? Yeah, and I'll take that one step further. Um, the Reformed guys uh, don't, to my knowledge, don't typically raise a, a big issue with Lutherans, and yet Lutheranism teaches baptismal regeneration. Now, I grew up in the Church of Christ, and everybody piles on the Church of Christ and says, we don't even know if they're Christians because they teach baptismal regeneration. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. But then we turn around to Lutherans, and they, you know, Martin Luther himself taught that God creates faith in the baby at baptism. Uh, that is a teeny-weeny baby step, no pun intended, uh, from baptismal regeneration. Uh, why do we not pile on them in the same way that we pile on the Church of Christ view? Uh, this is just hard all the way around. And when you've got someone that says, I believe that faith is what saves you, I believe the death and resurrection of Jesus. I believe in the, in the triune God and those kind of things. But I come to these diverse conclusions than you do on these other things. That's a, that's a tough one. We think about 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, um, I lay out to you the gospel that I first preached to you. And he lists several things there centering on the death and resurrection of Jesus and, uh, and his appearing in, in bodily form to the 500 and all of that think, okay, there he's giving us a little, a little summary, a little shorthand. Here's the core of the gospel. Doesn't mention any of those other things. So here's the way I tend to look at it. And this doesn't answer the question entirely of, of breaking fellowship. I, again, I don't know that I can. It's a case-by-case -case basis. But I don't like to look at the tiers so much as what, what are the things I have to affirm to be a believer? when Paul went out and preached the gospel, when the original apostles went out and preached the gospel, you know, they didn't have time to get into every nuance of everything that we're talking about here. So they preached the death and resurrection of Jesus. They preached repenting from your sins, uh, believing that Jesus is alive. And then they preached, be baptized. Uh, even the reformed guys, the covenant guys will admit that the first generation they had to be, had to be baptized as believers. Um, so we have to affirm those things as a starting place. Then the, where, where I'd like to take it is, what must you not deny? So as you grow in your Christian faith and you read that God is triune, okay, you can't now deny that there are more than one persons in the Godhead. If you, if you get to the place where you're denying that, now we have a problem. Are you really believing in the God that the Bible reveals? And if you start moving down to works righteousness kind of thing, okay, now you're starting to deny these things. So someone doesn't even have to have a full orbed grasp of justification by faith alone on the front end to become a Christian, to, to profess and, and to be accepted as a Christian. But as they grow and they're learning and they start denying some of these things, now we have bigger problems. And it may be that the faith they professed at the beginning was not real at all. So all that kind of gets at the core issue of, in my mind at least, of what you have to, where you have to start as a Christian. Where we break fellowship, 
that's just really, really hard. I would be more inclined to break fellowship with someone who taught a baptismal regeneration than I would uh, certainly eschatology, for instance. Uh, why don't we break fellowship so easily over eschatology? Why do we put that in the category of, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just, you know, because it's hard and everyone disagrees and people we love and, and are devoted to from church history believed this instead of that. So I don't want to call him out. Augustine, the Reformed guys hold up Augustine in great, uh, as, as, a, as a, the father, you know, the first great theologian. You look at what he taught on baptism man, I don't know. There's, there's some serious questions raised there. So well, all that is just a way of pool? saying, wasn't it an actual pool? Don't we have like in the cave, like that was Augustine's baptism. And it was like a pool, right? Like you could. Yeah. But also what it was efficacious. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. It's not the, the method so much. So all that is a roundabout way of saying, yeah, this is hard stuff. And I think we need to hold truth very, very strongly. And yet the desire for unity and preserving unity and where do those two break uh, fellowship from each other? That, that's, that's hard. Yeah. And you have conversations. I'm sure you've had people come into your church and come and go and go. And I'm sure your advice and your advice was to me recently, just go and see, see where you can go. I can look past this because I'm not a continuationist. I know you are, but I was able to be a member of a church where I looked past it because it almost never came up. In fact, the pastor even jokes they would be considered cessationist by their continuationist friends with how little it comes up. Um, but you could go to an extreme like uh, not a Gruden, but maybe like a Sam Storms, where I would be uncomfortable holding to that view of continuationism and being in a church. Right. I think you can sit there. We This is a little bit tied in with last week's topic of when do you go to church? How do you find mm -hmm. a church? But I just really am with the first tier, second tier issue. We're talking about two or three big things, really, aren't we? We're talking about women's roles in the church, um, baptism, and I don't even know what the, the third would be, but those are like two of the big ones. And I just really struggle with the Bible says, don't do something. And you're like, yeah, but it's they're, they're not getting salvation wrong. It's Philippians 1. They're doing it for the wrong reasons, but they're getting the gospel right. So what does it matter? It still kind of matters. Right. Like Mark Driscoll preached the gospel. I'm not going to his church. Right. Like he gets I don't mean but, you know, he's in the news again. So I'm just saying, like, there are things where you can clearly tell. Man, they're getting everything else wrong. I don't care. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's such a struggle mm -hmm. for me to go. This is a second tier issue just because they get the gospel right. But, man, they get everything else wrong. So Well, and, and we have to decide what question we're trying to answer here. That's the, this is the problem with social media and people mm -hmm. blasting out these questions or these comments, you know, Arminians aren't Christians and that kind of thing. Right. It's like, whoa, 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 let's, let's, what, what are we trying to answer here? Are we answering the question, is this a church I should go to? Well, it depends. What are your other options, right? If, if it's a, for you, if it's a continuationist church that uh, believes in infant baptism, but it is far and away the best church in uh, around compared to all the other things that other churches get wrong. Uh, you, you have to fellowship. You, you need to have your family in church. So maybe you got to put up with some of those things in order to, uh, uh, to be part of the part of the church. Um, so if, are we answering the question? And, and I don't mean you and me, I mean, in general, right. when we bring these topics up, are we answering the question, what church should I belong to? Are we asking the question, what things do I have to believe and agree with to be saved? Are we asking the question, at what point does a man or, or woman become a false teacher? I tell our seminary students all the time, there is a difference between teaching falsehood 
and being a false teacher. I teach falsehood. I, I, I have to because I'm fallible, right? I don't know what what areas I'm false in. If I did, I would change them. But there's no question that I have taught things that were false. I, I can prove that because I've changed my mind on things, which means either my original view was wrong or my, uh, or my current view is wrong. And you're certainly wrong on that. But what, you know, at what point do I cross over and become a false teacher that the Bible would condemn? So we got to be very careful and say, what question am I actually addressing in this discussion? Well, actually, I agree with you on Romans 7. I say, didn't you change on Romans 7? Didn't you taught it one way? And then your elders there kind of, and you went, oh, I hadn't really, you got to kind of go back to chapter five. And, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, taught Romans 7 in the traditional Reformed view with all the gusto I could muster and passion. And then it was actually the more I got into New Covenant theology, I began to think through the implications of the law being for the Old Covenant and the Ten Commandments being for the Jews and realized, oh, then Romans 7 can't be the law being applied to a Christian and that unraveled everything. And so it was our, at the time I was the associate pastor. Our senior pastor held the correct view, but to his credit, he allowed me to teach my view so long as I acknowledged there were other views. And uh, he loves to remind me of the day that I sulked into his office and said, you're right about Romans 7. <laughs> Here's your humble pie. Oh, well, that's good. And there are things that I think we come around on and it's usually kicking and screaming. And then there's that brokenness and then almost a sense of repentance and going, hey, you were right. I'm sorry. I remember uh, my buddy, Jason McClanahan, the pastor at Randolph Street in Charleston, talked about the first time he and his wife were confronted with the doctrines of grace. It was, as always, anger and heated. And then kind of some tears realizing implications of some things. And then, oh, my gosh, I see scripture much more clearly and hold God much higher in this view. And um, our Same thing you- happened to me. I, uh, I, was, I was raised in almost a Pelagian home. So the, uh, the doctrines of grace were almost anathema to me. And it was, I, I studied Greek in seminary and started reading Romans and Greek. And I'll never forget the day sitting in my desk in a little apartment going, oh, there's no way to get around what this says very straightforwardly. And I didn't like it at all. And I, I was like so many others, like, okay, in my head, yep, that's the truth. But I don't like it. I don't know how this fits God that I think I know. And now, of course, it's sweet and it's uh, it's wonderful. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's humbling. And I'll tell you another thing. I taught on, I was preaching through 1 Peter years ago, and I preached a sermon on 1 Peter 3 or into 2. And uh, during the next week of study, I realized it cannot mean what I said it meant last week. So I had to get back up the next Sunday and preach it again and say, I was wrong, completely wrong. And here's why I was wrong. And please forgive me for not doing better study. And here's what I believe is the truth. And, and that's, that's no fun, but uh, I don't think I'm a false teacher in those circumstances, but I was teaching falsehood. You know, I, I've never actually got the answer to this question, which is a really pathetic thing on my part, but my wife used to go to Brook Hills when David Platt was the pastor there and he was preaching through revelation and halfway through, he went, I'm completely wrong and flipped huh. and went back. I don't know if he went post mill to all mill or all mill to post mill, but he completely changed and had to go, I'm sorry, but that is a comforting thing to me that a pastor can do that. And this, whether or not I would agree with this view, I would find that to be encouraging if you were going to that church and going, oh, God's working. You know what I mean? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's an encouraging thing to me. So that, that is always good that God can make you see forever or in your own mind, you see something forever. And then all of a sudden you're going, 
oh, that's not what it says at all. Or that's never jumped out to me mm-hmm. at all. I never forget the first time Hebrews 12, one and two was, and it may have been Blake brought out the encumbrance part isn't sin, but it's something that becomes sin. We kind of think that, that, it, that, that that's sin. It's not, it's completely separate. It's something you've made sin as an obstacle in your life to get to Christ. And it could be morally neutral or a great thing. But now all of a sudden you've made this thing hindering your walk with Christ from food to friends, to work, to whatever, set it aside and make Christ first. And I went, Oh, I just assumed it was sin. Like, you know, the first, like, it's just, those are very cool things when, when people bring that out. And so um, that's the Holy spirit. I know I'm a, Cessation. No, but that's how the Holy Spirit works. And I'm thankful for that. So real quick, um, kind of tying in with all that and, and all these verses and things we were talking about. When you hear someone who is lovingly taking a Bible verse out of context, not a Joel Olstein or someone like that, but they literally throw Jeremiah 29, 11 at you and trying to encourage you. And it's no malicious intent there, right? Like they really think this is just remember, God's plan is to prosper. It's not to harm you. It's to give you a future. And you, uh, do you roll your eyes? You're like, ah, eh, their intent's good. I know what they're saying. This isn't the time to go. I'm not exiled to Babylon right now. I'm okay. So, um, and no one ever brings up, I think it's the chapter before the chapter after. He was like, yeah, horrible things are about to happen to you. And it's awful. Like, how do you approach those situations? Or Philippians, right? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You know, that kind of thing. So how do you approach those situations? Yeah, we need to be patient. Uh, if they're in a teaching role in my church, I have an obligation biblically to watch over what's being taught. So yeah, I will pull them aside and say, hey, let's let's talk about this um, and explain to me how you came to your conclusions and you know, ask questions. Depending on the significance of the issue, uh, you know, we as elders may say, you can continue to believe that, but we don't want you to teach that here. Uh, but I want to be gentle. We're all learning, right? Uh, pe- many people came to me and gently tried to correct me. I shouldn't say many. A couple came to me and try, tried to gently correct me on the Roman 7 thing, including the, the former pastor who, like I said, uh, let me do it. And uh, I, I didn't hear him. I wasn't convinced. I wasn't persuaded. Uh, he was not being a jerk, and I was not trying to be obstinate. I just didn't see it. So we had some good discussions over it, and uh, but it took further work of the Holy Spirit, further study from me to, to come to a place where I realized, oh yeah, that's not, that's not what that means. So I need to extend grace and gentleness. Again, here's a, here's a guy and, and the elders allowed me to teach what many of them disagreed with. And I love that. And I, I try to emulate that as well, because I think one thing that we as Christians are not very good at is disagreeing in love and having conversations and talking through these things. So uh, you, you got to pull them aside, say, Hey, I got some questions here. Uh, appreciate what you're doing, but, but here's where this doesn't jive in my mind and let, let's talk through it. But it, depending on the seriousness, you can't just let it go either. If it's somebody online or whatever, uh, right. man, that's just a dumpster fire to try to debate somebody there. Well, you can't genuinely think you don't think you can change someone's mind at a 240 character tweet. It has worked. Yeah. I've seen so many people come to the doctrines of grace or new covenant theology, or uh-huh. my view of yeah. sports, you know, yeah. no, he is a great coach. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. Typing on a message board, which is the CB radio of, uh, of modern media. But <laughs> I, I do struggle with that one because I think that is a fault of the reform community, especially where the arrogance they get accused of 
is wanting to jump down someone's throat for eisegesis. Yes, it's concerning, but most of the time, this is true, most of the time the people are eisegetical, God, I don't know even the proper grammar there, is it's usually well-intended. It's usually not from a standpoint of, I'm going to disprove your point, you know, like a AOC taking, you know, Jesus being a, a, an immigrant or whatever out of context to prove her point on immigration. No, that's not, usually it's in a comforting way, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I just think it, we should show more people grace in that situation. But there are times when it's like, I don't know, I kind of joke about it, too, when I'm lifting and my friend's struggling, like, you can do all things in Christ who strengthens you, I'm, you know, like jokingly. But then I'm like, is that good? Is that mocking God? Maybe I shouldn't do that, right? Like, I'm like, <laughs> that might not be the best thing, you know? Well, the, the proverb says that uh, you can persuade kings if you're patient and a soft word breaks bones. And, I, you know, I think what that's what Solomon and his wisdom is writing there is if you're trying to persuade somebody, if you put them on the defensive, what is it that puts people on the defensive when they're attacked? And so now it's not, Hey, let's talk about this thing. It's I'm attacking you. And I may not be attacking you, but if I come in hard and strong, immediately our reaction is, Oh, I'm being attacked. I have to defend. That's not the right posture to say, Oh, I'm willing to entertain your perspective on this. I want to hear your perspective. It matters how we present this. And so often it's, we come at people and just attack them. I'm going to be speaking at the Bunyan conference in June. And uh, I got a a passage that um, probably seems pretty harmless, pretty easy, pretty simple. How could I possibly get myself in trouble over this? It's it's chapter five, uh, especially the fruit of the spirit. Of Galatians. Yeah. Of Galatians. Yeah. But um, uh, there, I take a different view of, of that passage than almost everybody, which I don't love. I keep looking for scholars that see it the same way I do. But um, And these are NCT guys, so I would expect them to be very um, open to my approach because I think it fits best with our NCT hermeneutic all the way around. But there's going to be some folks that are like, what? This sounds, this sounds heretical almost. Well, I got to go in there and be gentle, be careful, be, be winsome and say, eh, this is going to strike some of you as very different from what you've heard. Let me try to explain why I see this way and welcome your feedback. That's that's the approach I want to take as opposed to, I'm right. I found something all you guys have been missing all this time and you need to listen to me because I'm smarter than you. That's not likely to get me uh, much of a hearing. You're going full New Covenant Theology NT right. I got it. Your new perspective on Galatians. <laughs> that's fine. Um, but I've once heard someone say, anything that doesn't align with scripture is heretical, but not, not all her- uh, heresy is damnable, right? Like, it's like, you can get, we all get things wrong and therefore it's not jiving with scripture. It's kind of by definition, heretical. It doesn't mean it's damnable heresy, you know? And I think, that's yeah, but a- see, even when you say that you are using this guy is whoever's this is, is using the word heretical in a way that's very different from what everybody thinks. So if you don't explain that very carefully, you say, Oh, that wrong teaching is heretical. Historically, that means we're going to kick you out of the church. You're not a Christian if you believe heresy, if you're teaching heresy. Mm -hmm. And that begs the question, who decides? Right? Who decides what's heretical? Uh, So that kind of language is just not helpful. Let's say, okay, I see this differently than you do. Let's let's talk through it um, and be open to it. As a church, again, it comes back to the context and what you're trying to do here. As a church, the elders of the church are required to contend for the faith. We have to make sure 
that uh, people are learning in tr truth. We're the guardians. We're the gatekeepers of what's being taught in our church. But I'm not the gatekeeper of your church. And so we have to be careful and, and not cross those lines, it seems to me. Right. And um, I would encourage people, if you have disagreements or concerns, first go to your pastor or someone else in the church. And then if you're not sure you're getting somewhere, then it's okay to go outside and get advice, et cetera. And then be like, well, how should I handle this? I'm sure you have other pastors you call in the midst of any situation, counseling, whatever. It's like, am I doing this right? Am I approaching this right? What do you think? So, um, but I would encourage people to be involved in their local church first. Um, and then go to people, you know, too, like there's nothing wrong with seeking uh, wise counsel either. Uh, before we go, uh, we didn't uh, break for one of our smooth sounding commercials here, but um, you mentioned New Covenant Theology. If people want to know what that is, they can go to crossthecrown.org. And it's, um, I think what you will find, this is just my view of it, you will find you agree with a lot of it and you'll be shocked how much you agree with or didn't know you agreed with. And there might be stuff that upset you because of your traditional view, like being confronted with the doctrines of grace. Um, but I'd say have an open mind. And there are people on the site, right, Doug, who they don't agree on everything. They don't agree on Romans 7. They don't agree on a garden covenant. They don't agree on the use of the law. And they, we might still say, or even eschatology, right? We might still say they're a new covenant. So uh, tell them what all they can find there and, and things like that. Well, you're exactly right. We don't all agree on everything. In fact, my, uh, my first uh, interaction with Blake White was I read his book, The Law of Christ, and loved all but one chapter. And I disagreed vehemently with one chapter. And I searched far, far and away trying to find a way to con communicate him, uh, contact him. And I couldn't. Finally, he found me and he contacted me. And uh, he called and said, hey, I found your stuff. I said, great, I got a question for you. <laughs> so, and we did this day, do not uh, see completely eye to eye on the content of that uh, chapter. I love Blake. He's a dear brother. We're on the same team, right? We just we don't see eye to eye. Again, I don't see eye to eye with myself on everything. So mm -hmm. certainly I can uh, get along with uh, a guy like him who disagrees with me on some things and I disagree with him. Yeah, on the site, they're going to find all kinds of resources. Uh, there's a, a section there, what is New Covenant Theology, where we have an article by Blake that uh, goes uh, just a high view overview of uh, New Covenant Theology. Then you can get his book, What is New Covenant Theology? It's, a, again, a very high level view of what we believe. And then you start getting into the, the real core of the differences between us and uh, dispensationalism or covenant theology. And you want to go to John Riesinger's three books. He's got the big three, uh, Abraham's Four Seeds, Tablets of Stone, and But I Say, and, uh, and really dive into those. Plus, there's years and years of Bunyan Conference audio and video where all of these things are laid out there, and that's all for free as well. Uh, so there's just tons of resources, and you're not, you're not going to find total agreement among every New Covenant guy, but that's okay. That's part of our, our hermeneutic, actually. It's, uh, we're always digging into the Scripture to see what is here. We want to stay away from a system that's imposed upon the Scripture. We want to let the Scripture say what it says, and that means sometimes I'm going to see some things there differently from how you see them, and, and that's okay. So tons and tons of great resources uh, on crosstocrown.org. Yeah, I think as all believers right now, it's a good time to camp out in Romans 14. Kind of take that in, right? Paul's not saying that one of you might be more right than the other. In fact, he is saying that, but he's saying, eh, let's, let's let some stuff just go. Let's find unity. And James, right? Like your attitude, your choice, you know, James hmm. chapter three and four, it's, it, you can still choose to find unity and not quarrel. You can still mm -hmm. pray for that person and yourself to not. So I would encourage people to do that as they go see things they disagree with too, because there are times just real quick, 
that I read something and I'm like, or I know I'm going to disagree with the person. I'm not even sure I want to watch it because it's just going to make me angry rather than let me have an open mind and then go. I had to do that reading through getting the garden right. Barcellus's book for the old podcast I did. I'm like, I'm going to hate this. But that wasn't fair to him. Right. He might have been able to change my mind. He didn't. In fact, I've seen better arguments for the one he was trying to make than his. But I didn't hate it. And I found him to be enjoyable reading it. So I just would tell people to have an open mind when you go to something that you're like, they are crazy. They're heretics. They're antinomian. Like, no, we're not. Just come and see. You'll see we're actually the opposite. But not that we don't have an extreme side. Right. Like Calvinists have an extreme side, the hyper Calvinists. Mm -hmm. There is a true, there's a far branch of new covenant theology that are antinomians. I get that, but we would just massively disagree with them. So Yeah, and we, we want to put distance between our view and their view for sure. But as you come closer to where we're at, uh, it comes back to how do you want to be treated? Treat others that way. I don't want people coming and attacking me for my views. I want them to say, hey, I disagree with you. And here's why. What do you say? Let's have a conversation. That's right. that's how I want, and that's how we should treat those that uh, that we disagree with. Yeah. Even reading their books, I wrote books. I write some books and essays and things, and I welcome disagreement. But nobody likes being told you're a heretic. You don't really believe in the Bible. You think God can change His mind. I had this conversation with a guy Sunday. Uh, you know the the Bible says God is not a man; he should repent. And a few verses later, says God repented. Uh, we got to take that at face value. What what does that mean? What is what's being said there? And if you just sweep it away and say, well, it doesn't mean what it says it means. Now you're teaching something about how we read the Bible. So we got to work through that together and, and have a conversation and not just assume the worst of whoever we're talking to. Crosstocrown.org. And again, there's also a seminary that's tied in with that. Um, and guess what? It might not be accredited, but these days that's a good thing. Yeah. I uh, Look at Owen Strachan. He's, he's actually got the strip mall seminary shirts coming out. <laughs> I highly recommend you go. It's it true. doesn't matter to me. Like, and I would encourage people because this is where Nine Marks is pushing people to teaching under the local church. It should be the churches training pastors. And that's the idea behind New Covenant School of Theology. And if you want to do it, I highly recommend you consider doing it. And guess what? You get to be plugged into a church. You don't have to look for a church. You don't have to do it. We've been there. They will love you. They will care for you. Um, And it's just, uh, there are a few churches I've walked into where even though I wasn't joining, we were just visiting where you go, Oh, we would be good here. I'm not saying this because you're a good friend. Yours was one of them. We walked in and just went, this, this is good. You can, you can usually tell that, right? And I would encourage people to check out newcovenantschooloftheology.org. All right, Doug, well, that's it. And as you would say, what should people do with their lives in all things? Live your lives intentionally Christ-obsessed.